This isn't the fucking Louvre. It's the Denver airport. <laughs> what what deep Illuminati secrets could be hiding in the Denver airport? Welcome back to Lyrics for Lunch, the show that takes you down to the streets. I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm a writer, filmmaker, musician, and host of the show. Um, and I'm joined, as always, by my wonderful, not grumpy at all co-host. <laughs> What's your name? I thought you were going to introduce me. <laughs> Lindsay Tucker. Hello, I'm Lindsay Tucker. I am the host of Lyrics for Lunch. <laughs> I have a cold. <laughs> I had a cold uh, last week. Yeah. Um, the power of suggestion. Power uh, of I am a journalist. I am a... That's it. Just leave it at journalist. Okay. How do you feel about music? I love music. Okay. So journalist, lover of music. Lover of dog music. Dog mom. Dog mother. Hater of people who say dog mom. Mm, fur baby <laughs> oh no it's even worse um so this this is a show where we do deep dives into some of your favorite songs and bands from music history and i am in the driver's seat today i've got my driver's Ooh. license last week <laughs> um and we're going to be talking about one of my favorite all-time favorite songs love take me down to the streets so it's actually just called love take me down parentheses to the streets so Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's jump into it. Lindsay, what is your experience with the song? I only know this song because you sent it to me. I think you were in Malaysia. It was a long time ago. There was some kind of a story you told me. Like, I really can't remember. I think it was in a movie. Great. <laughs> um, perfect. Perfect. Nailed it. Let's, let's, take a, let's take a listen to the song. Okay. Right? Let's take a listen to the song together. So often, 
Every song you choose is about prostitution. Well, so because you are so obsessed with thinking that the songs I choose are about prostitution, this one actually is about prostitution. Okay. Good modulation. This is like the Doug Funny edition. Bang on the streetlight. Street well, we're we're not not going to talk about Doug today. Really? <laughs> yeah. I told you this this episode goes places. Okay. So, what do you think this song is about? Um, a guy who's not getting his bone at home, and. He has to, doesn't have to, but he decides to go down to the streets to get some loving. So he's bored. His lover, wife, they said something about vows, so I would assume it would be his wife or husband isn't sexually satisfying him, and therefore he's going down to the streets. That's completely accurate. Okay. (laughs) So to truly understand the song, we have to take a look at Paul McCartney's history, right? So Paul McCartney was in the Beatles and Wings, right? Uh, and he was in Wings with his wife, okay, Linda McCartney, who's now since passed away. How many wives did Paul have? Two. Two. Linda and and the one that he divorced. Um, we don't know her name. I forget the one with one leg. What? She had one leg. Oh, actually, he has three wives. So, Linda McCartney, he was married to it until 1998 when she died. Then Heather Mills McCartney, who had one leg. Motorcycle accident? Traffic collision, yeah, with a police motorcycle. And he married Nancy Schivel in 2011. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves with the Paul McCartney stuff because our story begins in 1957. Okay. So this is a lot of myth busting, right? I, I I find the Beatles kind of generally uninteresting in terms of their like in terms of their history and legend, right? Because like we're both white kids with baby boomer parents from the East Coast, so I'm sure that like your parents talked about the Beatles a lot and how amazing the Beatles are. Russ had a healthy Beatles catalog. Sure, my dad actually was not a Beatles person, so in most of the Western world, 
it was like Beatles versus Stones, right? And for mm-hmm. whatever reason in Israel, where my dad grew up, um, it was Beatles versus Elton John. Oh. And my dad was like firmly in the Elton John camp. So. Okay. Yeah. But this is going to, this is all going to be myth busting Beatles stuff, right? Okay. Exposing the lies that the Beatles told us <laughs> or that people told us about the Beatles. That's the Can we just episode. first of all say who sang this song besides Paul McCartney? Is it a wing song? We have yeah, it said. Yeah, this, it's a wing song. Okay. Right. This is not the Beatles. Right. Paul was basically only ever in two bands. Well, that's not actually true. This is post Beatles. So this is a wing song. Great. So what is Paul McCartney's name? Sir Paul McCartney. Sir James <laughs> Paul McCartney. <laughs> Myth number one, busted. <laughs> Paul McCartney's name is James. Weird. Yeah. Uh, he was Who born would in... choose Paul over James? That's a very I don't know. choice. I, I, I don't get it either. So he was born in 1942 on June 18th, same day as my friend Rachel. Not the same year. And at the age of 15 in 1957, he meets John Lennon and John Lennon's band, The Quarrymen, at a St. Peter's Church party in Woolton in the United Kingdom. So they're 15 years old. John Lennon's band is playing at like a like a church dance. Okay, fun. And the and he winds up joining the Quarrymen as a guitarist. Paul does. Paul does. Okay. And the Quarrymen played uh, a type of music called skiffle. Have you ever heard of skiffle before? I have not. So skiffle was like a early kind of I would have to call it something like folk punk, right? So the king of Skiffle, the Skiffle King, was known as Lonnie Donegan. His nickname was the Skiffle King. I've gambled down in Washington And I've gambled up in Maine I'm going So Lonnie Donegan would take these like old folk songs like, you know, American he was British, but these American folk songs and just like like amp them up in terms this is of amped? Well just wait. In terms of beats per minute. Okay. So this is nineteen fifty seven. This is the same year that John Lennon and Paul McCartney meet. I'm like imagining these crazy clowns dancing and I don't like it. You're it's actually not you're not far off. <laughs> okay. There's video of, of a gambling man performance. Okay. So this cooks. I like this. Yeah, it's got some soul. It's got some soul. It's got some, it's like early punk, early rock and roll. Um, And so keep listening because there's like a celebrity cameo um, in this episode.
so we got a guitar solo, right? Did you hear what Lonnie yelled before he before the guitar solo started? Something about Jimmy? Yeah, that is a 15-year-old Jimmy Page playing that guitar solo. Oh, no shit. Yeah. So John Lennon was in a band called The Quarrymen, um, and they played Skiffle. We can listen to a little bit of The Quarrymen as well. So, I know the song. Who can you hear? Very clearly. John. Yeah, John. You like you can very clearly hear John Lennon's voice, and this is like the proto Beatles, right? That that the, some of the very first songs were these kind of rock and roll, rockabilly style tunes, right? So this is what the Quarrymen sound. Like. So James Paul McCartney joins the Quarrymen in 1957. Jazz, blues, folk influences. And then George Harrison joined in 1958. And this dude, Stuart... How old was George? Younger. Little baby Um, George. Little baby George. George was the youngest of them all. And Stuart Sutcliffe on the bass, right? And then Stuart Sutcliffe, like, left, and and Paul had to play the bass, and he was pissed about it. But in 1960, the band had tried several names including this is this is this is like real baby boomer shit johnny and the moon dogs whoa the beatles b-a-b-e-a-t-a-l-s and yeah. the silver beetles like b-e-e-t-l-e-s um and they just stuck with the beetles in august 1960 and recruited pete best their original drummer and then they head off to hamburg Right. So the Beatles in Hamburg is like a classic story that Malcolm Gladwell talks about in his book, The Tipping Point, uh-huh. where he talks about like the 10,000 hours. Like in Hamburg, the Beatles put in their 10,000 hours to become musicians. Right. And that is the kind of the story that musicians tell about the Beatles, at least, which is that like they they played and played and played and played and played until they were masters of their craft and that is myth number two that we're busting also i love malcolm gladwell but that ten thousand hour thing has been largely disproved so they played at a couple clubs they played at a club called the indra and then the uh, the kaiser keller and john lennon uh, was quoted about the kaiser keller we had to play for hours and hours on end every song lasted 20 minutes and had 20 solos in it that's what improved the playing right this is the ten thousand hours shit mm-hmm. there's no one to copy from we played what we liked we played what we liked best and the germans liked it as long as it was loud the beatles had been used to simply standing there when they performed in Liverpool, right? They, like, stood like statues and played. But people, uh, the the owner of the Kaiser Keller, whose name was Koschmitter, Koschmitter or Koschmitter, would come to the front of the stage and loudly shout, Mach Schau, Mach Schau, which means, like, put on a show, mm. right? Make a show. And the crowds were fucking tough. So violence broke out a lot in the, in the Kaiser Keller, and bouncers... Bouncers would would get into fights all the time, but the the Beatles had it particularly rough. Not just because they were from England, but because Beetle sounds like Pedal, which is the German word for penis in the what? local dialect. <laughs> so, so they got they got ribbed a lot. Well, they're new. Why didn't they change their name? No one knows I don't who know. the Beatles are. I, I I agree, but you know, 
It's. I think that that is hilarious. <laughs> the little uh, tiny Beatles. The Beatles. Um, <laughs> so, the stage of the Kaiser Keller was made of planks of wood balanced on top of beer crates, and so the Beatles and one other band that they always played What's with a made pint a pint of wood. Plank, plank oh, of wood. Plank. Okay. <laughs> a plank of wood. Sorry, <laughs> it's my Philly accent coming in. Uh, a, a plank of wood balanced on top of beer crates and so the Beatles and another group that they played with a lot made a bet to see who could be the first to break it after like punishing the stage for days a little crack appeared when and the guitarist of the other band jumped off of an upright piano and went through the 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 stage like literally went through the stage broke the stage in half so they were very very happy they that like they finally brought it was like their you know their big kind of laugh and they went across was the dude okay yeah everyone was fine like ringo's drums or pete best's drums fell into the fucking middle it was it was a mess but like no one was injured and they you know they were kids they thought it was hilarious and they went across the street to a cafe for breakfast um and that's when koschmeider's doorman the 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 bouncers doorman doorman <laughs> doormen armed with armed with batons beat them what they got beaten with batons jesus yes. fucking christ yes so this is so the beatles were not your this isn't your mom's beatles or your dad's beatles this is like i i they're kind of the first punk band also, they're children. Like, how old are they right they're now? They're 18 years old at this yeah. point. Never forget this part. <laughs> yep. So there's this dude, Horst Foscher, who was a bouncer at the Kaiser Keller. And he was a he was a 1959 West German featherweight boxing champion. And uh, his career was cut short after he unintentionally killed someone in a street fight. Oh, my God. He later became friends of the Beatles. And, and he didn't he was, go to jail? Nope. And he was their bodyguard. He protected them from drunken customers and kind of was their, like, manager. So this gave John Lennon in particular a uh, an air of superiority that he already kind of had. And so John Lennon occasionally urinated out of his apartment window onto the street below, started arguments with the audience so that the audience would jump on stage and Fasher would have to step in to protect them in... Some occasions, bottles were thrown at them, and Fasher remembers that Lennon often greeted the audience with a Heil Hitler salute and pulled out a black comb and pretended it was a Hitler mustache. What a lunatic. When John Lennon was missing for a performance one evening, Fasher found him in the bathroom with a woman. He broke up the... You know, the rendezvous with a bucket of cold water, which he threw over them both, and ordered John Lennon to go on stage. John Lennon was furious and complained he could not go on stage dripping wet. Fasher said that he didn't give a shit. You're going on stage. I don't care if you do it naked. And then John Lennon appeared on stage wearing only his underpants with a toilet seat around his neck. Oh, my God. So John Lennon was always kind of a fuck, it sounds like. Yeah. But, like, very punk 
like the punk ethos, right? Like if I mm-hmm. told you all these stories without the names, it could be Johnny Rotten or whatever. I'd love to do a story about the Sex Pistols too, because the Sex Pistols were a boy band. Anyway, um, also I really, really, really don't like John. So whereas in if it was someone else, there's a chance I would find some of these antics humorous. But being that it's John Lennon, I'm just like I, you, motherfucker. <laughs> I I feel the kind of the same way. Like if it was George, I'd be like, no, oh, George. <laughs> yeah. Poor George. McCartney said that the Beatles had only had sex with girls from Liverpool up until that point, but when they got to Hamburg, the only women that hung around the clubs late at night were strippers, dancers, and prostitutes. So Harrison, who was only 17 at the time, called Hamburg the naughtiest city in the world. McCartney said by the time you got to Hamburg, a girlfriend there was likely to be a stripper, so to be suddenly involved with a hardcore striptease artist who obviously knew a thing or two about sex, it was quite an eye-opener. Right, so this is potentially, potentially some inspiration for "Love Take Me Down to the Streets." But there was also drugs. The waiters <laughs> had these pills called Proludin. So when they saw the musicians falling over with tiredness, they would give you a Proludin. And is it this was, what Elvis took? This is, I mean, it's it's speed. So I don't know if it was this exact thing, but the, they would just take speed. Right. So the answer, short answer is yes. So in late October of 1960, the Beatles were lured to a different club by the promise of a better sleeping arrangement because the Beatles slept above the club and Korschmeider like like was in charge of their lodging, too. Right. So this enraged Korschmeider who got like fucked out of his hat of his main act. And in retaliation, he reported George Harrison, who was 17 at the time, for working underage, and George Harrison was deported. Oh, my gosh. They also, this did not deter the Beatles, and so Korschmeider had them all deported for attempted arson. So there was a, this this is the story of the attempted arson, is that in one of a, maybe not particularly raucous show, but in one of the performances john lennon nailed a condom to the wall and set it on fire used or unused i th- i don't know it's well, tough that's to- an important detail i i couldn't find out <laughs> um and korschmeider did not find it very funny and how do you doesn't it just melt yeah i'm sure but i'm sure it smelled okay ew burning rubber smells horrible um, but they did it like as a joke, right? And Korschmeider did not find it funny and had them deported, right? He like uh, had them charged with attempted arson. Okay. So, so now they're going back to England. Yes, now they're going back to England. So the the like rise of the Beatles and like their popularity kind of doesn't interest me that much, right? But I want to paint a picture of kind of a band that we all picture incorrectly, right? We picture this like these like four mop tops mm-hmm. who eventually got into drugs and started getting weird. Like no, they were always fucking crazy people. <laughs> In Hamburg, before they left, they recorded a song as a backing band for an English singer named Tony Sheridan and the song was My Bonnie, like My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean, so we can uh-huh. listen to so it was Tony Sheridan sings My Body Lies Over the Ocean, and the Beatles were just the backing band. And now that has been rebranded as The Beatles with Tony Sheridan. My body lies over the ocean. 
So fun fact, um, WXPN, which is the Philadelphia NPR radio station, plays this song every Christmas Eve, and, along with the Elvis version of Blue Moon of Kentucky. Why? I don't know. It's just a like part of their Christmas Eve programming. And so you're, what the harmonies that you're hearing are the Beatles. So this is still like early rock and roll, right? Like Chuck Berry shit. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So while in Hamburg, they caught the eye of this dude, Brian Epstein, who was their manager forever and ever and ever. Mm-hmm. And he was also an English guy. And, um, and he saw the potential in the band, not, uh, not just in liverpool but in the world and so he's the one that cleaned up their image right Mm. he's the tom hanks in that thing you do where he focused them into a legitimate kind of heartthrobby boy band their first single was in the first uk single was please please me this is Mm -hmm. when we start to get the beatles that we know and it was released in january of 1963 and it top charts in the UK. And there is a little bit of a asterisk about that that we're going to read about in, in, a, in a second. And it would be Epstein who traveled to the US as like an advanced team and secured a spot for the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. Okay. Right. So what do you know about the Beatles on Ed Sullivan? They were like bopping back and forth. <laughs> sure. Not nailing condoms to the wall. <laughs> Not nailing condoms to the wall. I think they were wearing suits. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of screaming girls. Mm-hmm. They might have sang, I'll hold your hand. Mm-hmm. Um, but like culturally. It was a big deal. It was a big fucking deal, right? So it was February 1964. And the audience reportedly was over 70 million people. Uh, McCartney calls it a milestone. Very important. We came out of nowhere with funny looking hair, looking like marionettes or something. That was very influential. And it's, it's like, quote, where were you when Kennedy was shot? I get people like Dan Aykroyd saying, man, I remember that Saturday night. We didn't know what had just hit us sitting there watching the Ed Sullivan show. Up until then, there were just jugglers and comedians like Jerry Lewis and suddenly the Beatles. Mm, okay. So the Beatles were paid $10,000 for their appearance and adjusting for inflation for 1964, that's over $80,000. So it's pretty good. Yeah. For, for, like, for a relatively new... Yeah, for your first ever appearance. Yeah. Yeah, $85,000. So, pretty good. And there is a rumor that I cannot substantiate... Okay. That, that this is a rumor that I was told... Like, I was told as though this was, like, a myth that was busted. So, we need to, like, r- myth bust the myth bust. Which is that the Screaming Girls were hired by Brian Epstein to be in the audience. I feel like that would be fact checkable. It is fact checkable. So this is so this is what this is the story and the story A is that the Beatles basically broke everybody's brains in 1964 when they went on the Ed Sullivan show and the the myth bust of that is that how could the girls who had never seen the Beatles before be in the audience tearing at their clothing? When they didn't know who the Beatles were. 
Like, why would they care? Love at first sight. Love at first, just like <laughs> you and Leo. Yes. So this is from The Beatles by Bob Spitz, which is a book from 2005. In terms of Beatlemania being, oh, it started this thing called Beatlemania, right? Uh, so in terms of Beatlemania being manufactured, there's one incident that is widely discussed. Consistent rumors that Brian Epstein's The Beatles manager, who also owned the Liverpool record store NEMS, fudged figures of the sale of Love Me Do, their first one of their first singles, and Brian Epstein's personal assistant, Alistair Taylor, is quoted in the Bob Spitz book by saying, buying boxes and boxes of Love Me Do. And later, after Love Me Do had entered the charts, he bought several thousand more, hoping to push it higher and draw more attention to it. However, there's a book by Mark Lois Lewison, Lewison from 2013 called All These Years, Volume 1, which argues that this didn't actually even make a difference because it was a thousand, a thousand extra records in Liverpool. It wasn't a big deal. And they're already like a well-known gr local group with a large fan base and pretty much the only local group with a record contract. So Spitz, the 2005 book, claims that EMI, the Beatles record label in the United States, bought time on Radio Luxembourg, which was a popular pirate radio station at the time and it was the only station available to the uk which played non-stop pop for the beatles to appear on a live studio party he also quotes dot roan who was paul mccartney's ex-girlfriend at the time um, as saying that she had been encouraged to phone the pirate radio station radio luxembourg to request the song as basically every band's friends have done since the dawn of time right i was gonna say nothing sounds out of the ordinary about this exactly but i think that that these two stories are getting conflated with each other which is why I was told with a straight face when I was in high school by my psychology teacher, Mr. Gerhauser, that those girls were paid to go tear at their clothing, right? So I think it's like people are, are combining two stories together. The first mention of anything like Beatlemania and the Screaming Girls in Spitz's book takes place at, a, at the live studio party at Radio Luxembourg, which like may have been helped along by you know, the people who were calling in and asking about the Beatles, which is fine. The Beatles press officer at the time is quoted as saying there was an applause sign, but it had to be spontaneous to some extent. But like a press officer would fucking say that shit. <laughs> um, and then when the Beatles touched down in New York in February of 1964, there was a New York Times account that says there were 3,000 teenagers that, who stood four deep in four deep rows uh, on the upper arcade of the International Arrivals Building, and the crowd had been whipped up by various New York radio DJs broadcasting live from the airport, encouraging kid kids to come to the airport, offering prizes like Beatles wigs and blah blah blah, and like. That was bought. That was paid for by the record company. Mm -hmm. But like it, what it it is no more nefarious than any it's other team. That's street teams. Yeah. yeah. But you know, this is this is dispelling the rumor that those women were paid to go scream at a band that they didn't know or care about. Yeah. But you said it was. I'm sorry, I'm bad with the numbers. But like seven million, what seventy million people on Ed Sullivan. People. That yeah. would be a lot of lots of dough. Well, no, not there weren't seventy million people in the audience at Ed Sullivan. <laughs> that it watched was on it. TV, you know. That watched it. Yeah. Well, when you said that, I was like, "What?" 
Yeah, it was that about seven. Huge. <laughs> it was about seven hundred people in the audience. Okay, which is you know not bad for a studio audience. It's very big. Okay, so from 1963 to 1966, the Beatles toured. In 66, they stopped touring. Uh, they never really intended to quit touring for good. Do you know why the Beatles stopped touring? This is like another one of those famous like legends. I thought it was because of like all the girls and like peeing on themselves and just yes. being all crazy. There was a couple things, right? So fear for their safety because the girls were peeing on themselves and and being crazy. But secondly, <laughs> their screams were so loud that the Beatles couldn't hear themselves play. Okay. So, like, we didn't we take for granted the fact that we have like in ear monitors and giant stage setups that like kind of started happening in the late 70s and early 80s. Like in 1963, they just like plugged into an amp and played. And so there's a famous Beatles performance, which is the one of the final performances, which is Candlestick Park, and which is what caused them to quit, where you can't, you just can't hear them play. There's just mm -hmm. like so much mm -hmm. screaming. Yeah, the Beatles played one more live show on January 30th, 1969. It was an unannounced concert on the rooftop of their Apple Records label in london and um they played a 42 minute set before the police asked them to, to turn down the volume which is like come on guys i mean i understand that it's 1969 but like if the beatles showed up magically showed up on the rooftop every cop would just like lay down their weapons and and worship at them um and this was for a documentary the documentary was originally called i think get back or something but it it uh wound up being called let it be it was like a it was like a a tv documentary that was about the beatles recording their final record and was actually released after they broke up there are 13 beatles albums in the core catalog once again i'm not super duper interested in the actual beatles so in 1969 the beatles break up okay so myth bust number three why did the Beatles... Who broke up the Beatles? That slut Yoko Ono. That slut Yoko <laughs> Ono. So, okay. Yoko Ono did not... No not kidding, contribute. really? <laughs> oh, no, no. No, she did not not contribute to oh, their breakup. Oh, okay. Right? So, according to basically every source that I found, time, biography, blah, 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 their breakup was a cumulative process and it started with the death of Brian Epstein. So Brian Epstein died in 1967 after the Beatles stopped touring and McCartney kind of took over as the band's manager, which did not make Lennon feel very happy because Lennon is was a dickhead, right? Mm -hmm. And very controlling. And so McCartney was controlling. Lennon was on heroin and was very into his relationship with Yoko. And George Harrison was starting to write his own songs and kind of take, get his own career going too. And like he became a fucking Hare Krishna and shit. Um, <laughs> and so there's going to be more on Lennon and McCartney in a future episode, like more about their rivalry in a future episode of this show. So there was also some legal disputes about like who owned what and how much of and blah, 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 just like any band. So in 1975, all the legal disputes were settled. Lennon and McCartney were talking again. Lennon was separated from Yoko Ono and dating someone else. And there was like some talk of a reunion. But you were like, Yoko did not not have part of it. I Can you please explain how any of this was her fault? It was no, it's not her fault, but I think John's relationship with Yoko was something that Paul cited as a distraction from the like Paul demanded that sounds kind like of a fealty. John and Paul problem. 
It definitely, I'm not blaming Yoko, but I think that everything played a role. Just mm-hmm. like Brian Epstein's death played a role and George Harrison's songwriting played a role, mm-hmm. right? It's all, it's, it's like this kind of big cloud of, you know, also bands aren't supposed to last forever. They'd been in a band for 12 years. Like, Just like marriage. Right. <laughs> I mean, this, that's like, they call, they talk about it a lot and they, they, John, broke up the Beatles by saying he wanted a divorce. Mm-hmm. So it, on April 24th, this is like the closest we ever had to a Beatles reunion. Do you know about this? Uh, April 24th, 1976. I don't think so. So during a broadcast of Saturday Night Live, so this in the, in their, the end of their first season, Lauren Michaels went on the air and offered the Beatles $3,000 to reunite on the show. Lennon and McCartney happened to be hanging out at the time watching Saturday Night Live. <laughs> no way. Yes. In, this wasn't like they had Hulu. <laughs> in Lennon's apartment at the Dakota in New York, was, which was within walking distance of the NBC studio. And they were like thinking about just going and surprising the show and just going. But they decided not to. I think the rumor is that Julian was sick and they didn't want to leave him home alone. Mm-hmm. But all of this past 1966 is irrelevant because that wasn't really Paul. Because Paul's dead. Because Paul's dead. <laughs> so now we've entered act two of our story. Paul is dead. Well, Paul was already dead. They said it in I'm the Walrus, I think. Okay. So, yes. Tell me, tell me about this Paul is dead thing. As, as much as you know. Um, so, honestly, I probably, I forget a lot of it. But there's, <laughs> there's a lot of wild theories about how Paul McCartney died during the Beatles era. They replaced him with a body double. Mm-hmm. And there are supposed to be, like, little Easter eggs in some of the songs exactly. about Paul being dead. And I think it, even, like, in the cover of Sgt. Pepper's, they're uh-huh. supposed to be... Like, Nailed it. Okay. <laughs> Isn't it, you're, you're absolutely right. So, according to a conspiracy theory, Paul McCartney died on November 9th, 1966, and was secretly replaced with a lookalike. The rumor began circulating in 1967 and br- grew in popularity after being reported on American college radio in 1969. Oh. So stupid. Proponents based the theory, theory on perceived clues found in songs and album covers. Clue hunting proved infectious and within a few weeks had become an international phenomenon. And there was a Paul is Dead hotline where you could call. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about all that. <laughs> it's crazy. So according, this is like, this is the theory, right? McCartney died in a car crash and to spare the public from the grief, the surviving Beatles replaced him with the winner of a Paul McCartney lookalike contest, sometimes referred to as William Campbell or Billy Shears, right? Mm-hmm. From Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts mm-hmm. Club Band, the song. Afterward, the band left messages in their music and album artwork to communicate the truth to their fans. <laughs> this includes the 1968 song, Glass Onion, in which Lennon sings, here's another clue for you all, the walrus was Paul. John wrote uh, the tune Glass Onion, and when we wrote it, we were thinking specifically, I mean, he wrote it mainly, but he, I helped him on it, and uh, we, were th- we were writing it, we were thinking specifically of this whole idea of all these people who kind of re- write in and say, who was the walrus, John? Were you the walrus, or is Paul the walrus, or who's the walrus? 
So John, I mean, we just, he happened to have a line, kind of go, all, and, and he said, yeah, the walrus was Paul. And we had a great giggle, you know, saying, yeah, let's do that. Let's put this line in, because everyone is going to read into it. It's going to go, crackers. Crackers. So I think I think the I think it's just a verb thing, right? Because if he said the walrus is Paul, like the only clue to that Paul being dead is the fact that it's was and not is, right? Because the walrus doesn't die, and I am the walrus, right? I have no idea what what's the clue. I mean, I yeah. get it. How um, there was another song, "He Blew His Mind Out in a Car," where they're saying mm-hmm. that's Paul. That that yeah, that's sounds a day in the life. like something. Yeah alluding to death but being a walrus mm. no so uh, some other clues right the cover photo of abbey road mccartney is shown barefoot and he's not like in step with everyone else clearly that means he's dead um <laughs> the one frequently cited example is the suggestion that the words i buried paul are spoken in the final section of the song strawberry fields forever uh, in which the Beatles, which the Beatles recorded in December of 1966, Lennon later said that the words were actually cranberry sauce. Cranberry sauce. <laughs> Rumors declined after Paul McCartney did an interview. He had been secluded in his, with his family in Scotland, and so like. This is this f- added fire to the rumors because like there wasn't social media back then, so like where is Paul? But he did an uh, he did an interview with Life Magazine in November '69, and the phenomenon in the '70s was the subject of analysis in the fields of sociology, psychology, communications, and McCartney parodied the hoax with the title and cover art for his 1993 album "Paul Is Live." Um, <laughs> so stupid. Rolling Stone had a fe- had it featured on its top 10 world's most enduring conspiracy theories so from rolling stone on september 17th 1969 tim harper an editor from the drake times delphic which is the student newspaper in drake university in des moines iowa published the article is beetle paul mccartney dead the article addressed the rumor being circulated on campuses that the clues from the albums included messages interpreted as turn me on dead man what heard when the white album track revolution nine is played backwards so we have the first example of backmasking or one of the first examples of backmasking I mean, I guess it does kind of sound like "Turn Me On, Dead Man." Or Edmund. Turn me on, Edmund. Edmund is the name of the impersonator. From time, if fans placed a mirror on the front of the Sgt. Pepper's album, the Lonely Hearts Club drum logo could be read as one die, one X, he die, one, one, one. Jesus. 
also referenced was the back cover of Sgt. Pepper, where every Beatle except Paul McCartney is photographed facing the viewer, and the front cover of Magical Mystery Tour, which depicts one unidentified band member in a different colored suit from the other three, according to the music journalist Meryl Noden. Meryl Noden. The Drake Delphic Times was the first paper to publish an article on the Paul is Dead theory, and Harper said it later became the subject of discussion among students at the start of the new academic year, and they blame, like, Vietnam, weirdly. The Vietnam and the so-called establishment that they were so sick of of all of the lies that the establishment was telling them, so they were ready, willing, and able to believe any sort of conspiracy that they were faced with. Did the Beatles ever address this head-on? So, in a couple ways, the Beatles did address this head-on, but they were always kind of cheeky about it. I'm sure they were enjoying it. Yes. So, on October 12th, 1969, a mysterious, set in context Rolling Stone, caller to a Detroit radio station told DJ Russ Gibb about the rumor and its clues, and then Gibb and other callers discussed the rumor for the next hour, during which the radio, the DJ offered further potential clues. Two days later, the Michigan Daily published a satirical review of Abbey Road by University of Michigan student Fred Labor, who had listened to the exchange on the radio under the headline, McCartney is dead, new evidence brought to light, but I have to stress, it was satire, and it identified (laughs) various clues to McCartney's death on Beatles' album covers, particularly on the Abbey Road sleeve. Labor later said that he had invented many of these clues and was astonished when the story was picked up by newspapers all across the United States. Okay, so people really thought it was real. Yes, people really thought it was real. Soon... This is from Noden. Soon, every college campus, every radio station had a resident expert. WKNR fueled the rumor further with its two-hour program, The Beatle Plot, which first aired on October 19th. So this is 32 days after the first newspaper article. There was a two-hour program. Gotta sell those papers and... TV spots. Yes, but this happened so fast. The story was also taken by more mainstream radio stations in the New York area, WMCA and WABC, in the early hours of October 21st, 1969. WABC disc jockey Robbie Young discussed the rumor for uh, on air for Omer over an hour before being pulled off the air because he was supposed to be playing music. Oh my god. I mean, I get it. You know, shit gets boring. Sometimes you need something fun to believe in. It's true. At that time of night, WABC Signal covered 38 states. Wow. And at times, other countries. Um, Although the Beatles press office denied the rumor, McCartney's atypical withdrawal from public life continued to fuel the fire. So, like, radio stations dispatched, like, reporters to the Apple Corp record company to like investigate ringo told a reporter if people are going to believe it they're going to believe it i can only say it's not true in a radio interview with uh wnkr john lennon said the rumor was insane but good publicity for abbey road (laughs) on halloween 1969 in a buffalo new york radio station broadcast a program titled paul mccartney is alive and well Maybe, <laughs> which analyzed different Beatles lyrics and clues, and the How many DJ... people dressed up like Paul zombies? Oh, that's fun. Uh, zombies weren't really a thing until 1968, so that's like perfect 
perfect coincidence. Coincidence, <laughs> you know. The WKBWDJ concluded that the Paul is Dead hoax was fabricated by John Lennon. What for? To get rid of him? I don't know. He was uh, to get rid of him to sell records. <laughs> I don't know. Before the end of '69, before the end of October '69, several records had been released that exploited the phenomenon of McCartney's death, including the Ballad of Paul by a band called Mystery Tour, Brother Paul by Billy Shears and the All Americans, and So Long Paul by Werby Finster, who was a, that was a pseudonym for Jose Feliciano. I thought Billy Shears was Ringo's alter ego. Because Billy Shears is the Ringo's alter ego because he sings a little help for my friends, right? Okay. Right? We, we present Billy Shears and then Ringo sings. So, like, right. that makes sense, right? Yeah. The people who believe in this conspiracy theory are called pallbearers. No. Yes. I hate that. Me too. <laughs> so, the... Um, the actor playing Paul McCartney went on TV to finally dispel in 1993 to finally dispel the rumors. The fake Paul. The fake Paul, because Paul's dead. Okay. Wait, you remember when you were with the Beatles and you were supposed to be dead and. Uh, there's all these clues that, like, uh, you'd play some song backwards and it'd say, like, Paul is dead. And uh, everyone thought that you were dead or something. Yep. <laughs> uh, that was um, a hoax, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't really dead. Right. Okay. This show's all about hoaxes. This episode's <laughs> all about hoaxes. By 1970, no one seriously believed that Paul was dead, but for some reason, the story remained hugely popular long after it was debunked. And it's like it's like a timeless ritual of college students and fan culture to like check the clues for yourself, much like doing Dark Side of the Moon and Wizard of Oz together, right? It's like, oh my god, let's mind. We're oh my, we're gonna mind blow. Denver Airport. Denver Air. What's in the Denver Airport? Oh, there's so much. It's it's like, like a Paul's stuff? dead thing. <laughs> oh really? Yeah, like the Illuminati, and there's all these underground tunnels, and there's all of these um, like messages in the right in the floor, like inlays. In the Denver airport, and there's a genocidal mural, and there's Lucifer, which you've seen. Yeah, Lucifer, <laughs> I have seen, and the genocidal mural. But like, this isn't the fucking Louvre; it's the Denver airport. <laughs> what what deep Illuminati secrets could be hiding? In the Denver airport. A couple other clues. Um, in Abbey Road, you can see a reflection of a human skull if you, like, hold a butter knife up to the cover. Or on side two of the White Album, if you drop the needle in the right place after I'm so tired and spin it backwards, you can hear the word, Paul is dead, man. Miss him. Miss him. <laughs> This is really creeping me out. <laughs> Good. So, so we think Paul's dead? No, I just, this is just like the kind of like creepy auditory sounds that I don't want to hear. 
Um, okay. But I didn't really hear them saying Paul is dead. I could kind of hear them miss, I heard him, miss him, miss him, miss yeah. him. And then it was kind of just like, Govna. So we'll go back to Govna. Because <laughs> gov- Govna is a clue. Okay. <laughs> so even though this article says, in 1970, no one seriously believed Paul was dead, there's a 2004 movie called Paul is Dead. Who made it? Uh, I just sent you the IMDb. It's Hungarian. So the plot is a school kid finds out that Paul McCartney died early and the public has not been informed and like goes on a truth finding. It's from 2000 slash 2001. Yeah, 2000 slash 2001. I said 2004. I was wrong. And also a comic book from from 2019 called Paul is Dead. I like the artwork. Yeah, it's pretty nice, right? Yeah. When the Beatles lost McCartney. So people still believe this. The most popular conspiracy theory in music history. It's true. One of the things that I point to to prove that Paul is dead is the existence of the band Wings. Oh, I was wondering where this was going, but I knew you were going to get there. So after the Beatles break up in 69, seven, in 1970, Paul McCartney, at the age of 27. 27 Club? Oh, we're going to talk about the 27 Club today, too. <laughs> Oh, oh shit did, I didn't even send you an email but it's like you read ahead I'm just on the same wavelength as you so but I but it's it's just important for me to note that like he's still very young right that 27 to have been in the Beatles and then the Beatles are over and still you're 27 is pretty pretty young yeah so he recorded two albums by himself which is called McCartney and Ram. Ram, he recorded with his wife, Linda, and he insisted from the beginning that Linda was involved in all of their musical projects, even though she didn't have any experience as a musician, so that she could go on tour with him. Which, like, you can just bring her, but then he'd be just like John, you know? hmm Out of Ram, the second solo album, he met the core group of musicians that would become Wings. So, do you know how Wings got their name? The TV show. Yes, exactly <laughs> right. Time traveler Paul McCartney. Yes. Big Tony Shalhoub fan. <laughs> Always wanted to work in an airport. So this is from the documentary called Wingspan. The band's name has is said to have come from McCartney as he was praying in the hospital while Linda was giving birth to their second child. In 1971, uh, there were some, quote, there were some complications at birth and both linda and the baby had almost died and paul was praying fervently and the image of wings came to his mind and so he decided to name his new band wings okay yeah okay wings had 12 top 10 singles including one number one in the uk and 14 top 10 singles including six number ones in the u.s all 23 singles released by wings reached the u.s top 40 their most famous songs are live and let die for the james bond movie of the same name jet and band on the run pete townsend from the who saw wings in the 70s and said paul was out there with an under rehearsed band oh shit wings had seven albums and worked together until 1981 
According to McCartney biographer Christopher Sanford, quote, there was no big bang moment when Paul decided to demolish Wings. I suspect that after John Lennon's murder in December of 1980, Paul had a disinclination to go out on the road immediately. I mean, for one thing, you're more vulnerable physically. And secondly, it's very hard to go out and sing silly love songs and other upbeat stuff when you're grieving over your best friend. True. But even before that, uh, there was a drug bust in Japan in 1980, which is also talked about in that Chris Farley interview. Uh, McCartney had canceled all new dates for Wings and related and released his solo another solo album called McCartney Two, uh, and Wings just like kind of faded faded apart. Right? They spread their wings and flew, and they flew too close to the sun from each other. Yeah, <laughs> too close to the sun. <laughs> They burnt up like a crisp. So it's funny that you say that. McCartney, it seemed, was not even sentimental about the uh, demise of Wings. In 2001, this is also from the documentary Wingspan, one of the jokes I've been waiting to use the minute Wings split up was to say, Wings fold! But as it turns out, Wings didn't actually fold. It dissolved like sugar in tea. (laughs) Okay. But Wings sucked. Like, Wings is horrible. They're not a good band. I truly like Jet a lot. Okay, that's fine. But I'm not saying that. That's not a quote from me. Decades later, in 2016, a man being interviewed by BBC Radio 4, Master Tapes, confirmed that the bad things everyone said about the band were indeed true. Quote, Wings was terrible. Not a good band. People said, Linda can't play keyboards. And it was true. Who was that man? Paul McCartney. <laughs> okay. But you also don't like Paul McCartney, right? I don't, but this, this, doing this research has made me like Paul McCartney more. Oh, good. Because I almost wore my Paul McCartney shirt today. Ah, you should have. Um, now we get to my favorite Wings song. Love Take Me Down, parentheses, to the streets. Love Take Me Down to the streets. Love Take Me Down to the streets. Finally. Which is not a Wings song. Okay, you lied to me. It was written for the 2008 movie Role Models. Okay. So, in the movie, there's a running gag that one of Wings' greatest hits is the song that doesn't exist called Love Take Me Down. I knew it! Martin Gary. I can always spot a newbie. It's my fifth year with Wings. I guess Paul McCartney's got nothing on me, huh? Love Take Me Down to the Streets. It's not a Wings song. Yeah, it's one of their hits from the 70s. I'm not sure which one. It's not a... It's not. It isn't? No. I think it might be. That's not... Nobody sings that song. Ah, oh, Kumbaya, huh? You don't have to know any Wings, do you? Wings, yeah. This was a this was a joke like quickly made up by the act the redheaded actor whose name is A.D. Miles. And so this is what's called a sound alike, right? A sound alike is a recording intended to imitate the sound of a popular record, the style of a popular artist or a musical trend. And um, it also refers to the artists who perform on such recordings, right? So there is a famous sound-alike band called the Hit Crew. Now, the Hit Crew is just like a rotating group of people. There's no, like, set membership of the Hit Crew. But Drew's Famous is the company that produces a ton of these sound-alike songs. Okay. A record label? And and kind of. It's like Drew's Famous pop songs. Drew's Famous dance songs. Drew's Famous ballads. Like, now that's what I call seven? 
Now that's what I call the hit crew, right? So Drew's Famous and the hit crew are kind of interchangeable, and they re-record famous songs in the style of those same songs so they can be played on the radio, mostly in other countries, and you won't have to pay royalties, or you pay like fewer royalties. So I went through a deep, deep Drew's Famous rabbit hole, but I picked one song for us to listen to for Drew's Famous. There are literally thousands of these. So what are you hearing? Toxic. Baby, can't you see? I'm calling. I got It's dangerous. I'm falling. So what are you hearing? There's no escape. I can't it sounds a lot like Britney. But like not all the way, right? There are parts where you're like, oh. Like the backup vocals are weird. Yeah, and like the harmonies are weird. The production value is slightly different. But there are hundreds, thousands of these like if I heard that at the bowling alley I would just be like this is a weird version but I wouldn't be like it's fake right and so they do this for that exact reason so that you can so that you can listen to it on the radio or at the bowling alley or wherever and not realize that they're not paying Britney Spears or Madonna or whoever to use their song you want to listen to one more hit crew song Last week, we did our Madonna episode, so here is Madonna. It's already weird. It's not holiday. Right. Some are better than others. Yeah, no. This this reminds me of The Wedding Singer. Yeah. I live in my parents' basement. <laughs> exactly. But, once again, if you're at the bowling alley, yeah. especially once the layers come in, I don't know if I'd mm-hmm. notice. Okay, so <laughs> So how many songs have you heard in your life that were like knockoff songs? I'll never know. You'll never know. Right? This is pretty good. It's pretty good. Okay. So how did Love Take Me Down start? This is from Vanity for the art the actual artists for Love Take Me Down are Joey Curatolo, Chris Anderson, Charles Gansa, who wrote the song, and A.D. Miles. So Gansa was, is a Brooklyn singer-songwriter, and he was formerly the singer of uh, an indie band called Govna. <laughs> Hello, Govna. Hello, Govna. Quote, this is from Vanity Fair. The great thing about Love Take Me Down to the Streets is that it doesn't sound like any particular Paul McCartney song from the 70s, but somehow manages to evoke the mood and sound of Live and Let Die, Junior's Farms with a Little Luck, and many more. Quote, Gansa, Gansa, I was taking my impression of being a kid and how it felt when Band on the Run came on the radio. I was trying to evoke some of the feelings that the old song did so it wasn't out of an academic or super fan interest. The writer of this 
article for Vanity Fair calls himself a Paul McCartney geek and apologist. So this was a big deal. And this is what happened. Along the course of the movie, a couple minor characters claim with absurd certainty that Wings once had a hit called Love Take Me Down to the Street. Gansa ended up writing the song because he was working as an arranger and composer beneath Craig Wedron, who was doing the score for the movie. Quote, I was helping him with arrangements, and Craig said, that would be really funny to have this whole song written. And Gansa's like, I'll do it. <laughs> Gansa... Gansa's song has all the major Wings elements, a melodic opening that has little to do with what comes next, the Linda vocal, a vague, optimistic lyric, a catchy melody that takes a few odd twists and turns, the slightly abrasive guitar work, and I'm adding this for my own flavor, uh, the modulation, a bridge that goes to an unexpected musical place and an ending like that, like the outros of Jet and Listen to What the Man Said seems to come out of nowhere. Wings songs seem to sprawl more than Beatles songs do, says Gansa. Beatles songs are perfectly crafted, concise songs, and Wings songs often have like different sections and they ramble. Um, and Gansa found Joey Curatolo, who is a McCartney soundalike, who performs with a band called Rain, which is a famous Beatles tribute band yeah. based in Reno, Nevada. I've seen them touring around. Me too. <laughs> Quote, I found him online and I called him. He saw the 718 number on my caller ID and he thought it was his mom calling. So he answered in the son voice. Hey, ma. A week later, I flew out to Reno and worked with him for six hours and he did a great job. And that was it. So hoaxes, right? The Beatles were the subject of many hoaxes, both real concocted by the band and concocted by their fans. But this is not the first time a fake Beatles band was created. So there are a couple of notable um notable Beatle like sound alikes. Um one is a band who this this band that sings a song called Hark. Okay. Have you heard Hark? I don't know yet. Apparently, according to some article that I read, they play this like Bed Bath and Beyond during Christmas time. Okay. I promise you I would never go in Bed Bath and Beyond around Sure. Okay. Clearly me, me. Oh my god. I hate this so much. Tell me more. And next thing you know, I'm going to be playing it at Christmas. Yeah. So this is horrible, right? Yeah, it's really bad. So this is, it's really bad, but this this speaks to a real thing that happened, which was bands recording Christmas versions of their famous songs, right? Like the Beach, the Beach Boys re-recorded Little Red Corvette as Little Red Saint Nick. Yeah. So... John Popper made a Christmas song that was the tune of the fish song, uh, Friend Divided of the show, Sky. John <laughs> yeah. And so I never liked fish, but like my friends did in college. And the first time I heard Divided Sky, I'm like, this is supposed to have a Christmas song. And they were like, no, no. it's a very famous <laughs> fish song. And I was like, mm, I think you're wrong. <laughs> mm, I think you're wrong. And there's also the band called The Ruddles. Yellow Submarine Sandwich slash Salad Fingers. So what do you see? Um, I see the Yellow Submarine cartoon guys. Kind of. A cafeteria. Food's getting thrown around. Cheese and onions. A submarine sandwich. How's the, how's the sound alike working for you? Um, it sounds like John. Pretty good one, right? Yeah. So this is from Eric Idle from Monty Python. 
Um, and he had a show called Rutland Weekend Television. And it became the Rut- the Ruttles from Rutland Weekend Television grew beyond the show and became their own thing, which is uh, in 1978, a mockumentary was released on the Ruttles called All You Need Is Cash. And it's just a Beatles parody. There's like a bunch of stars in the movie. Bill Murray plays a DJ named Bill Murray the K. George Harrison makes a cameo. Hmm. And there's a famous video that you can see on YouTube um, of Eric Idle and George Harrison like playing together. So there's also another famous Beatles sound alike band from a cartoon that we all watched as kids. Oh, Doug Funny. The Beats. So this is not a great sound alike. Right. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't think that this was the Beatles if they weren't called the Beatles. It's kind of more Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. There are also plenty of sound alikes happening on TikTok, like too many to mention, and horrible like radio shock jock parodies. Especially of the Beatles. There's like I think in every market there's like a breakfast with the Beatles thing that happens on Saturday or Sunday mornings and they do like mm-hmm. fake station identification as the Beatles and it makes makes my skin crawl and I don't want to play them here. But <laughs> act three of this show is famous musical hoaxes and okay. sound alikes. Okay. From this is from Consequence of Sound. Fleetwood Mac, amidst a internal strife and after losing a string of guitarists, the last of whom Bob Weston was booted for having an affair with Mick Fleetwood's then wife, Jenny Boyd, Fleetwood Mac cut their Mystery to Me tour short. So their band manager, Clifford Davis, put together a fake Fleetwood Mac with no actual Fleetwood Mac members to fill the band's obligations, telling the audiences that Mick intended to join the tour later. What? This actually happened. The public eventually caught on, as did the band, instigating oh a lengthy legal battle. Oh, Jesus Christ. But the legal battle was over who has the rights to the name Fleetwood Mac. Well, what about the songs? The, right. I don't know. Davis eventually lost the case, and the fake Fleetwood Mac formed a band called Stretch. That sounds like a stretch. Uh, yeah. Kanye West, back in 2010, while promoting what would go on to become his magnum opus, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, Kanye West performed a track called Mama's Boyfriend. Its first appearance dates back to July 2010 at an acapella performance inside Facebook's headquarters, in which Kanye West expanded upon a month later amidst a surprised stripped-down set alongside John Legend at a New York City club. As the story goes, the end of the year arrived and the album was championed by critics and fans, yada, yada, yada. But the track was nowhere to be found. Until seven months later, when a music blog posted a mysterious studio rendition of Mama's Boyfriend. It was fully realized and sounded like classic Kanye West. Down to the beat, the hook, the samples, and the blogosphere exploded. Posts were published and the track was another critical hit. Except it was fake. 
Who was it? This is from Universal Music. The version of Kanye West recording of Mama's Boy that arrived on blog sites earlier this week is entirely bogus and unsanctioned and violates the artist's creative intentions, as is often the unfortunate case an unknown party or parties got a hold of Kanye West's vocal track and added their own sound bed to it. So they took the acapella performance and created their own production effectively falsely releasing it as a Kanye West track from the My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy session. He walked in our lives, I was only five. Superman pajamas, I was super duper fly. Sitting there like, why? He at least supersized. You know I scrutinize like, who this newer guy? I'm a mama boyfriend, I'm a little husband. I was the man of the house when it wasn't. Trying to get to know me, homie, just kill the charm. You ain't interested in me, you just trying to fuck my mom. We are the voices of our parents' bad choice. Kanye's an asshole. It was like a fake copyright infringement sort of deal. Um, but this this reminds me of like the ship of Theseus question, right? So you have an axe, and you're chopping wood with an axe, right? Mm-hmm. This is this is the ship of Theseus riddle in like axe form. So you have an axe, you're chopping wood with an axe, and then the handle breaks on the axe, right? So you go out and you get a new handle, and you go back to chopping wood, and you're chopping wood, and then the blade breaks. So you go out and replace the blade. Is that still your original axe, or is the axe in pieces on your floor? The latter. So this is like a like a thought experiment. This happened at the end of WandaVision as well. How is this not real Kanye? It's, it's, this is Kanye West, but it's like unsanctioned Kanye West's like collaboration with this producer. Right. He didn't have any creative control over the final product. Right. Which doesn't mean it's not a Kanye West song. But that's different from the Axe story, because this would be like if we threw out Kanye's lyrics and replaced them with some bunk-ass lyrics, then would it still be Kanye West? No. (laughs) It's like you're looking ahead into the future, Lindsay. (laughs) So there is another one from Radiohead. If it sings like Tom York and it sounds like Radiohead, then it probably is Radiohead, right? No. The whole internet thought that it had opened an early Christmas present when a song entitled Putting Ketchup in the Fridge, reportedly a Ben's or OK Computer B-side, popped up on YouTube. The vocals sounded right. Pretty yet languorous guitars and drums seemed to fit the time period. And so the blogosphere took it and ran. No one seemed to pay much attention to the the, the dumb title. And it was clearly not real. What was the dumb title? Putting ketchup in the fridge. Okay. So do you want to hear the fake Radiohead song? I do. Putting, putting ketchup in the fridge? I definitely do. I mean, it sounds like Radiohead. It does. So this, it turned out to be a 2001 demo from a Toronto guy named Chris Stoba who at the time had given up music and opened a bakery. Okay. <laughs> so and what- it's, unc- it's unclear whether Chris Stoba 
was the one who put this to- put this out in the world, or someone found it and released it as fake Radiohead. He could neither confirm nor deny. I don't know if the, I have. I found no research as to whether they even asked him. Okay. It's pretty good though. Yeah. Christoba released it under its proper the song's proper title, "Sit Still." Um, later on. So there's also this band called Platinum Weird. Okay. Ready for ready for the story of Platinum Weird? I'm ready. Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics and Cara Dioguardi, who is an American Idol judge, recently in the 2000s, wrote a a bunch of songs that quote sounded like they could be Fleetwood Mac B sides from the 70s. And so they made up an elaborate backstory about a band called Platinum Weird, who recorded these songs in the 70s but never released them. And they invented a fictional lead singer who DeGuardi idolized as a kid. And DeGuardi and Stewart said that they wanted to remaster the album and re-release it with new additional vocals. And they tricked thousands of people into believing this whole thing was actually true because they got the chairman of Interscope Records and Mick Jagger, Elton John, and Stevie Nicks to corroborate the story. What? They produced a mockumentary about the band and aired it on VH1. This was not even that long ago. No. This was in 2006. Okay. Yeah. They even released their own record called Make Believe, which was released in 2006. Paul McCartney, again, Rolling Stone in 1969, published a review of a supergroup called the Masked Marauders, which was supposedly a double album A-list jam session between Mick Jagger, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, and Bob Dylan and other heavyweights. People did not pick up that it was sarcasm, that it was satire. Quote, it can truly, this is from Rolling Stone, it can truly be said that this album is more than a way of life. It is life. It felt just so real, man. (laughs) So they did... The only respectable thing they could do, and they got a band together and recorded a fake album at a major studio. The album was set to be released and sent to stores and bought by more than 100,000 rubes. And the single Cow Pie actually got to number 114 on the Billboard charts. No. Yes. So Paul McCartney is no stranger to hoaxes. Slow start. Yeah, but like a little stonesy. Stonesy Dillity. Yeah, definitely don't. I think that might be the only word in the song. What? I want my money back. I love this. The 
The British rock band The Zombies formed in 1962, and they had hits with She's Not There, I Got My Mojo Working, Tell Her No, etc., etc., etc. They fizzled out, and they kind of broke up, took a hiatus. They got back together eventually, but um, in 1969, they struck gold again in America with Time of the Season, a number three hit. They headed on tour uh, across America again to cash in on the second wave of interest in the band. Except the band that headed out on tour in America in 1969, calling themselves the Zombies, were not the Zombies. Who were they? There were actually two groups that purported to be the zombies and toured the U.S. in 1969. Neither of them were the actual zombies, but one of them contained two of the three members of future band ZZ Top. What? This is just weird. As for the actual zombies, they split up in December 1967, and they were unaware that the U.S. label had released Time of the Season, March of 1969. It just was like kind of a second life for the song. Okay. There's a long read on it from BuzzFeed called The The True Story of the Fake Zombies, the Strangest Con in Rock History. So 1978, the year after Elvis died, the label that released his first music, which is Sun Records, put out a duet version of a Jerry Lee Lewis solo single from 1961, Save the Last Dance for Me. The other voice on the single and other duets to follow from the Sun back catalog is initially unnamed, but it sounds kind of like Elvis. Were these unreleased Elvis tracks? No! It was a guy named Jimmy Ellis doing an Elvis impression. Is this the song? You can dance, ever dance with the guy who gives you the eye. Yeah. The pioneer founder of Sun Records, Sam Phillips, sold the label and its catalog to this dude named Shelby Singleton in the wake of Elvis's death. Singleton exploited both fans who were grieving their idol and an ambitious journeyman singer named Jimmy Ellis, a vocal doppelganger for Elvis. Ellis achieved the fame that he sought, but became increasingly uncomfortable playing the character that that they dubbed Orion. Wait a minute. Let me just make sure I'm following this. They were Elvis songs that were never recorded. They got an Elvis sound alike to record them. They were not Elvis songs. But yeah, they got an Elvis sound alike to start recording songs with a mask, and they called the mask fig the masked figure Orion. No, so no, like no. The mask- he was wearing a mask. Yes. What kind of mask? Uh, I don't know. I mean, that I sounds think- horrifying. So it this there's a documentary called Orion, the Man Who Would Be King, and I'll sh- I'll show you a picture of Orion in the mask. It's very clearly not Elvis. This is Orion. So they put Orion in a mask. They put him out on tour, and people were like, "Is this Elvis? Is El?" This fueled the the rumors that Elvis wasn't actually dead. It's very clearly not Elvis. In the okay, picture. but also <laughs> the mask is just covering the eyes. Uh huh. He has what would you call that a mullet? Yeah, it's like a it's like an old guy seventies hair. I was thinking much creepier. Like a Guy Fox mask. No, no. So, uh, Ellis achieved the fame that he sought, but became increasingly uncomfortable playing Orion, and he ripped off the mask in 1983, only to find that not very many people were interested in playing old Jimmy Ellis. Oh, poor guy. Orion, he, he put the mask back on in the 1990s. And he died in 1998. He was murdered during a robbery at the pawn shop that he owned in Alabama. No, this is such a tragic story. I know. 
Oh, my God. Clearly, everyone should be familiar with the Millie Vanilli hoax, right? Yeah. So, real quickly, what is the Millie Vanilli hoax? It wasn't really them singing. They were lip syncing the whole time. Yes. So, um, so Fab Morvan and Rob Pilatus launched their career with the like their pop career with the song called all with this record called all or nothing in 1988 it's retitled girl you know it's true after its lead single in the u.s was a top three hit in the uk and the u.s and they used behind the scenes songwriters and lip syncing at live performances um but this was like not that's like that happened all the fucking time. The scandal really blew up when it was revealed that they hadn't sung the song on the record either, right? So they were masks. They were they were puppets for a German producer and songwriter called Frank Farian or Farian, and Frank Farian had a hit in the seventies that is now has gotten a resurgence thanks to TikTok. He produced the disco track Rasputin for Boney M. That's how you pronounce it? Rasputin? Yeah. Looks like Rasputin. It is Rasputin. Have you not heard this song? No. You need to go go on TikTok more often. My TikTok algorithm is fucked. I only get the same four people over and over again. This is for our Gen Z listeners. So this is the same guy behind Millie Vanilli. I like this. It's like, do the hustle. It's also like Ace of Base. Real McCoy. Ace of Base was, were Nazis. We'll do an Ace of Base episode. Here's, here's, the, here's the chorus. See, that's why I called it Rasputin. Got it. Russia's famous love machine. Okay. So yeah, he produced that record too. I don't know if he sings on it, but well, that was just that's... delightful, isn't it? Yeah, it's huge on TikTok now, like crazy huge on TikTok. Um, there is also a classical version of this by this dude named Fritz Kreisler. Kreisler. He was an Austrian-born virtuoso violinist, and he claimed to unearth unheard great works from past masters like Bach, Vivaldi, and Pugnani. <laughs> It's 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 got to be pronounced Pugnani, which is not great for me. <laughs> um, he said that he found it in places like libraries and monasteries, and he was just do it with sheet music, right? Which is how that Mormon guy fabricated all of those works. What? What Mormon guy? There was a Mormon guy who who was like the world's greatest forger and forged a bunch of like Mormon works. There's this thing called the White Salamander Letter that he forged to uh to like discredit the church and make like millions of dollars and he wound up blowing himself up in a car. He's in jail now. Wait a minute. He blew himself up and survived and then went to jail? Yes. Wow. He blew up two other people and killed them. Whoa. Yeah. There's a Netflix documentary about it called Murder Among the Mormons. Mm. This is this is my own kind of red red yarn theory. Brandon Urie from Panic at the Disco is a very good producer and was in a Blink-182 cover band and then magically recorded a record that sounded just like Fallout Boy and posted it on Fallout Boy's MySpace leading them to get signed to the Fallout Boy record label. So, that makes me think that that first Panic 
record and that first panic kind of sound was deliberately to capitalize on how popular fallout boy was and to be like the kind of fallout boy sidekick yeah because they don't sound like that anymore they don't and they put out pretty odd pretty soon after uh i write sins not tragedies album whatever that was um and pretty odd sounded a lot like earlier beatles Right. And so I think that that Brandon Yuri is one of those producers that's really, really good at pastiche and that and and sounding like other people, um, which is great. And I think so there isn't an official story saying that follow that panic started as a follow up boy cover band or tribute band. But like. I think that I write sins, not tragedies is panics version of love. Take me down to the streets. Okay, You know what I mean? Yeah. So there's also the famous story of Tim Ripper Owens. I don't know. So we're back we're back on sound alikes. Um, so there's there's this band called Judas Priest, right? Yes, I know that. Tell me, tell me if this starts to sound familiar. In 1996, Judas Priest was going through a breakup. Their singer Rob Halford was fucking over it. Um, closeted gay man. And a videotape of a dude in a Judas Priest cover band called British Steel made its way to the drummer of Judas Priest. And they hired the tribute band cover singer, cover band tribute singer, to be the new singer of Judas Priest. It inspired the 2001 movie Rockstar starring Mark Wahlberg. No. Yes. Isn't this similar what happened with Journey? Yes, Journey has like a similar kind of story. And there are certain artists who play in their own cover band. So some bands simply yearn for the simple joys of being a tribute act. They might be giants have been known to support themselves as Sapphire Bullets, a They Might Be Giants tribute band. And most creatively, Two Door Cinema Club booked a series of small gigs in Galway claiming to be Tudor Cinema Club, a tribute to Tudor Cinema Club. They promoted their doppelganger selves with flyers featuring a made-up quote from Bono saying, we are even better than the real thing from the Irish Times. They might be giants pretended to be someone else pretending to be themselves? Yes, and Tudor Cinema Club did the same thing. What about so they Foxborough might be... Hot Tub? Foxborough Hot Tub is kind of a similar thing. It's just an, a spinoff band with all of the members of Green Day but playing songs tr- that... trying to pretend they were someone else or no? They were trying to, they like had, they just like never admitted to being Green Day, but they just were Green Day. But this is, this is They Might Be Giants pretending to be a They Might Be Giants cover band and Two Door Cinema Club pretending to be a Two Door Cinema Club. This is so strange. I told you this was weird and it's only going to get weirder. So this brings me to my theory. I'm going to, I'm going to coalesce it before we get into our, 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 our final, our epilogue. Paul McCartney declared dead. 1966 november actually survived but the beatles had already replaced him with william campbell or whatever the fuck his name was so now he's going around the world as joey curatoni or whatever the fuck and we are what love take me down to the streets is is actually the real paul mccartney returning to the spotlight why would the real paul just take it like that just take it like (laughs) this is this is my theory okay so there are a handful of so this was a hoax in 2008 this love take me down to the streets thing that never really 
took off. But it does sound like a wing song. And this was at the very, very beginning of what's happening now, which is song soundalikes being written by AI. So now we've entered our, our last section, which is these days we are having computers write songs from bands that don't exist. Why? Because this is just fucking what computer people are doing these days. Okay, I'm ready. So, first one, so that there are artists like Brian Eno and Massive Attack, which are more in the computerized and digital space that are easy to kind of replicate because it's just this, like, musical texture. But it gets a little bit more difficult when you get to songs with lyrics. So, this is a song called Daddy's Car, and it was a song composed with artificial intelligence in the style of the Beatles. I don't know. It doesn't sound super Beatles-y to me, apart from it the do- opener. It doesn't sound super Beatles-y to me. There are, there are moments a little later that start to sound more Beatles-y. Um, the song was re- created by researchers at Sony who used this flow machine software to analyze a database of 13,000 lead sheets, which are basic scores of melody and harmony of music of different genres around the world. And the software writes its own melodies and a human composer like turned it into a fully produced track. And he, all you had to do was like input the desired style of music. And in this case, it was the Beatles. Okay. So it's like a little Beatles. It's wingsy right? too, was- right? It's a, it's quite wingsy. Yes. Yeah. And this was in 2016, so five years ago. Okay. So we also there is also an, an attempt to write a Eurovision song. So Euro the Eurovision Song Contest, for people who don't know, is a song contest all around Europe. That's in its 65th year or 66th year, and it's like the best pop song from all of Europe. What um, bands has it given us? It's given us ABBA, mm-hmm. fa- most famously ABBA, um, and the movie Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga, starring Rachel McAdams and Will Ferrell. So, Not my favorite Rachel McAdams movie. I, it was fine. <laughs> um, so an Israeli input all of the Eurovision songs to create the ultimate Eurovision song. Would you like to hear it? I would. It's called Blue Jeans and Bloody Tears. Whoa. So this is bad. This is just bizarre. So the AI comes up with these lyrics? Mm-hmm. Tears will always have wet eyes. It's kind of ironic that a robot's writing this. Yeah, because it's, it's about being very human, right? There's no life without your life in misery. (laughs) Pretty good, right? (laughs) Okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. But still seems to be kind of in the uncanny valley for me. Of like, it doesn't sound like a human wrote this song. No. No. Right. So, 
in addition, in the Uncanny Valley, there's like a series of on YouTube. There are a couple of computer scientists who feed a different band's lyrics into an AI and have them write lyrics. So we have Nickelbot, which is the Nickelback. No. Morrissey, The Strokes, Metallica AI, ACDC, Red Bot Chili Peppers, no, no. and Nirvana AI. So this is these are just lyrics, right? So the, the AI spit out these lyrics and then the human composed the song around the lyrics in the style of the strokes, right? So if you're a strokes fan or if you're a stro- if you're you can look up any of Botnik's compositions and and if you're a fan of the band you'll be able to hear snippets of these songs in other songs his the singing voice is not the best but sounds like a stroke song so we we haven't gotten good enough to deep fake the singers yet but one day i think we will. So this leads me to our final clip. Nirvana again. So Nirvana again. So you mentioned the 27 Club. What is the 27 Club? Um the 27 Club is not something you want to be a part of, I don't think. Correct. Um a bunch of musicians or famous people who died at the age of 27. Musicians that died at the age of 27 include Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Amy Winehouse, and so there is this project called the Lost the Lost Tapes of the 27 Club. This is a brand new project, and it is using AI to analyze up to 30 songs per selected musician which who struggled with mental health issues, including Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, and Amy Winehouse, to write and perform new songs in their signature style. So, I don't know how I feel about this. Yes. So it's a Toronto-based organization aiming to raise awareness about mental health within the music community, and it's called the Lost Tapes of the 27 Club. So this is music and lyrics composed by AI, but still sung by a human being. I just have conflicted feelings because I support mental health awareness, but the way that they're going about it is so strange. Yeah, I don't like this. This is not a good idea to me. Okay. Just take the, take the money that you are going <laughs> to use to do this and just give it to mental health advocacy. All right. Um, because what this, because I think that this is, well, let's listen to it and then we'll, we'll, let's listen to it and then we can discuss its implications, right? So this is the brand new Nirvana song, Drowned in the Sun. That's unpopular. The Nerf Herder song? <laughs> yeah. Wash your hair every two weeks. At once, once every, every two, two weeks. weeks. I mean, it sounds like heart-shaped box or something. It's It sounds like Nirvana to me. So Drown in the Sun, Drowned in the Sun mirrors Kurt Cobain's songwriting and guitar skills via computers 
while Eric Hogan, the lead singer of the ultimate tribute band to Nirvana, which is called Nevermind, for vocals. They did, okay. he did the vocals. And in an interview with Rolling Stone, Hogan traced similarities with Nirvana's seminal albums in utero and Nevermind. Um, and he like recorded it as though it is a B-side from one of those records, right? Okay. I don't know, man. This sounds fucking like Nirvana to me. It does. I feel like it's like. What does Courtney Love say about this? I don't know. This is. It's. It's very interesting. The implications, right? So, the point of the twenty-seven, the lost tapes of the twenty-seven club, is to show that we lost these people too early, right? No, you're showing the exact opposite thing. Like, it doesn't matter. We'll just make this fake. We can fake holographic. (laughs) We have a holograph machine. So and so this is this is the this is the real question mark is like by drawing comparison to like, look at how good we are with our AI now. It is undercutting the thing that they are that they are purporting that they're doing, which is right. Just make a documentary about mental health. Yeah. And so there isn't no word on what Courtney Love has to say about this. What's behind this? A Toronto-based group over the bridge. And they're doing this with all of the 27s? Yeah, you want to hear Jimi Hendrix? Yeah. So we'll go out on this Jimi Hendrix song today. It's kind of shreds, man. I feel lied to. You haven't told me one thing about Love Take Me Down to the Streets. I have told you about Love Take Me Down to the Streets. <laughs> it's about a guy looking for a prostitute. I told you that. Yeah, but you're right. I told you that you were right. <laughs> All right. But but the interesting thing about Love Take Me Down to the Streets for me is creating a fake that is so good that it can fool you to for the original and in my case is better than the original right Whoa. like i don't like any wing songs None? and i really like I, jet's pretty good band on the run's okay but like i love take me down to the streets is my favorite wing song <laughs> it's not a wing song and so this is the question is like when does the fake earn its originality never never well that's it for this week Thank you for taking me on this roller coaster journey. I of told you it was crazy, right? <laughs> but there's like a whole, there's like a whole final. This is the next frontier in music: is creating facsimiles that are indistinguishable from the real thing for artists that are dead. Because we are that unoriginal that we can't come up with anything new. And we're so obsessed with our own nostalgia, right? Also true. Like, we keep wanting to bring back old TV shows and remake old movies and hear covers of old songs rather than giving artists the space to do new stuff. It's brutal. Tis brutal. (laughs) That's our episode for this week. Thank you so much for listening to this roller coaster. You can find us on social media, but where? At Lyrics for Lunch. On which platforms? Instagram and Twitter. What if there's a long one? You can email us at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. So until next time, I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm Lindsay Tucker. Saying, love, take me down to the streets. Yeah.